Richard series, and we're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 15. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and our service team will get you a Bible, and you can follow along with us. The title of our message today is Lost and Found. You know, it's something that every public gathering place has a lost and found box, Right? We have it every weekend. People leave their keys, they leave their cell phone, they leave their glasses, they leave their children. They, they leave things all the time. And, and we have a box and, and we tell people, hey, go to the lost and found. I pastored in Idaho and we had started a school and we would have several tables of all the children. Their parents would buy them all this great winter gear. They would leave their gloves and their hats and their parents would get so upset after giving them great equipment. The kids are scattering it all over the place and we would have lost and found. But at the end of the year, there was still leftover stuff that nobody claimed. They know, no one picked it up. Well, chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke is about people that are lost and found and the beef that the religious leaders have with the sort of people that Jesus was rescuing. You see, the reality is, is that religious people do not believe that God should love bad people. But Jesus came, as we see his theme verse of the Gospel of Luke, is in Luke 19, 10. And it says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's looking for those who understand their lost condition. And I don't know if you've ever been lost, but it can be a terrifying experience. I was going to elementary school at Oxnard in, um, it was the, the name of the elementary school was Oxnard, in North Hollywood. When I came from this small little town in, first, in Buell, Idaho, as a first grader, six years old, and I came and I was enrolled in this inner city, rough neighborhood. I, I took my first good beating uh, in uh, North Hollywood. And one day in the first week, I came out of school from a different exit, and I got turned around, and I just wandered around for the next hour. I, I, I didn't know where I was. I was six years old, and I sat down on this corner, and I just started crying because I didn't know where this new apartment, we had just moved there, uh, all my older siblings, they weren't there to you know, take me home that day. And I just sat there and cried. And I, I looked down this street after I got done crying my eyes out, and down there I saw the corner of our apartment complex and I was never so thankful to see the dump that we lived in <laughs> than that moment. Because there was something about that dump that meant I was gonna be home, I was gonna be safe, I was gonna be with my mom. Because you see, the week before, I had just taken this good beating, and my older brother, Scotty, he had to watch the beating because there was two big guys that were telling him if he interfered with me getting pounded, they were gonna beat him up. So I came home, I had blood, my mouth was bleeding, my nose was bleeding where this kid punched me over and over, a uh, kid twice my size. And I came in the house, I was once again wanting to get to a place that was safe, and I came in, and my mom saw all the blood. She's like, what happened? I said, oh, he's, this guy beat me up. And she looked at my brother at that moment. And she said, where's your blood? And he said, well, mom, you know, and I even defended my brother. I'm like, yeah, there's a couple of big guys. They're going to beat him. No sense. And both of us getting beaten up was kind of my mindset. And my mom got so upset. She said, if your little brother comes home covered in blood, you better be covered in blood or don't come home. <laughs> <laughs> From then on, my brother took all the beatings for me for the rest of my life. It was, it was an amazing pep talk that my mom gave him. But 
you know, part of me today is going to miss that home that was the safe place for my mom because she went home to be with the Lord this week. My brother and I and sister were with her for the last two weeks. I was with her for a week, came home last weekend and preached, went right back, and we spent the week. And we really wanted to be there when my mom was going to meet Jesus face to face. And she was going to breathe her last. She was confident in her salvation. She knew she was going to heaven. Cancer had ravaged her body, and we had taken care of her for two weeks. And anybody that's helped family members in terminal, terminal condition know it's, it's a very uh, it's a ugly situation, very, very difficult. But as we sat there, my, my brother and my sister and I, and my mom, just she just breathed her last breath. And I knew as she breathed her last breath on planet Earth, she was going to take her first breath of heaven. And she was going to be home once and for all. The safest place that we all want to go is heaven. But until we get there, there is a home that we are searching for, that we are looking for. And sometimes we're lost and we don't even know what we're looking for. But in this story, Jesus is going to unfold to us how heaven rejoices over that lost and found soul and how religious people have a beef with that. Stand with me. We're going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke. It's a well-worn passage, so please may the Lord blow the fresh wind of his spirit into our hearts to receive it in a fresh way. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, this is the point of the entire chapter, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. This is the point. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father, we thank you for the joy in heaven over lives that surrender to you. And Lord, we are those people that has brought some joy to heaven because we were lost, Lord. We were lost in our sins and our emptiness and our guilt and our shame. And Lord, you broke into our world. Jesus, you rescued us and you saved us. And Lord, we brought a smile to heaven and we didn't even know it. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to love the broken lives that come into our midst that we can share that same hope and have that same joy as they turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Yesterday in Fox News, a headline grabbed my attention. Maybe it grabbed yours. It said, from porn to prayer. And I thought, well, that's an unusual headline for Fox News. From porn to prayer. And it said this 39-year-old 
uh, had been in the uh, sex industry, had performed over a thousand pornographic movies, a thousand, for ten, in 10 years. I mean, that's doing a lot of film, right? And, and then he gave his life to Christ. And so for the last 10 years, he's been ministering to people and sharing the hope that's in Jesus. Now, how's that title hit you? Because for the religious leaders that saw tax collectors and sinners coming and hanging out with Jesus and him spending time with them and eating with them, which was the most intimate part of fellowship, because they had this idea, which is a true idea, that as we eat together, you and I are now becoming one because the loaf of bread that's nourishing me is now nourishing you. And and we're sharing together in this very intimate thing about eating And so they said, how dare you hang out with the tax collectors? Now, by the way, if you don't know why they always say sinners and tax collectors, because tax collectors was the most most abhorred individual in their culture because they ripped off the people so painfully. Now, April 15th is right around the corner. I don't know if you have any friends that work for the IRS. I've never met a friend that works for the IRS because I imagine I've met people that work for the IRS, but they don't want you to know they work for the IRS, <laughs> right? So, uh, but for the, in the Roman culture, they would bid for a region or a place where they're gonna collect taxes. And that's what, if they got the bid, they had to pay the Roman government that. But whatever they could extort above that, it was okay with the Romans. So they really took people to task. And most of them were Jewish people like Levi or Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, that he uh, was collecting taxes, so he would have been hated. But when Jesus said, come follow me, he went to Levi's house, and he invited all his friends who were all tax collectors because the only people that tax collectors could be friends with were other tax collectors. So the household was filled, and the people were so upset. You see... The immoral, tax collectors, the lepers, the lame, everybody that was the social cast-offs were the people that Jesus was loving and reaching because they were lost and he brought the love of God to them so that they might be found because they were the people that saw their need. Because people that don't see their need, let me tell you, the hardest people you're ever gonna share your faith with are good people that see themselves as having no need. They have no need for forgiveness. They're good people. On their bumper, they got, I am the parent of an honor roll student in the eighth grade. I pay my taxes. I help my grandmother. I'm a nice, good person. And so you try to share the hope of Jesus with them. Now, when I share my testimony with people, good people look at me and go, ooh, you needed Jesus. People like you need Jesus. That's good for you. You ever got one of those? That's good for you. But moi, I don't need Jesus because I've got it all together. Is that right? Well, that's your perspective. That's not God's perspective, but that's your perspective. Do you know that heaven is not filled with good people? It's filled with forgiven people. Because if you think you're good enough to go to heaven on your own, why in the world would Jesus come and brutally die on a cross for your sins? There's, it, it makes no logical sense. Well, in this story, the first two pictures are about One, an animal. You lost a sheep. Now, when was the last time you lost a sheep? Anybody here ever had sheep? Now, I've owned sheep, goats. We had an old McDonald's farm at our house when our kids were growing up. My my daughter had a pet sheep named Fuzzums. That's what she wanted to name Fuzzums. But the reality is most people, you haven't lost a sheep lately. But you might have lost your dog. 
You ever lose your dog and flip out because your dog's a part of the family? Uh, when you find that dog, you're so excited. We had a, a dog that would, once a month when the guy would come and spray our yard, he would leave the gate open and our dog would get loose. And it was drama, drama, every time, such drama. The, the women were in tears, we're going up and down the road, we're looking for this dog and we find the dog. Oh, great, let's have a pizza party. We found Brownie, that was the name of our little schnauzer. And so whether you're losing a sheep or you lose a coin. Now, coins don't have the same value that they had in that culture, but let me just ask you, are you one of those people that can never find your keys? Or are you married to the person that can never find their keys? Where's my keys? Where's my keys? Right, you need your keys. Uh, I'm absent-minded, so I have to have certain habits. I always have to put my keys right here when I walk into the house. Or if I go to the office, it has to go right here in my backpack. Otherwise, I just, like, where's my keys? I, I lose my keys. But when you find them and you've lost them, you are so thrilled, right? Now, I'm not sure that you have a party like in this case. In both cases, they found a lost sheep and they found a lost coin. They told all their friends and neighbors, hey, come over, let's have a party. Let's have a celebration. But now it gets more personal. Now Jesus turns the corner into that famous story of the prodigal son. But do you know the story of the prodigal son, even though that's the emphasis that's usually put there, is really not about him. The whole chapter is about the older brother. The older brother that is so torqued off that dad would celebrate his son who was lost and now he's found. Tells us in verse 11 about this, these two brothers. A certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living or wasteful living. Prodigal means wasteful. But when he had spent all, he's flat broke, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He's hungry. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, a Gentile, not a Jew, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. The most embarrassing thing that can happen to a Jew is to have anything to do with the unkosher animal of pigs. Verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Now, when's the last time you were tempted with the food that you're slopping the hogs with? Now, I asked most of you if you've ever had a sheep, not one hand went up. And I doubt if any, anybody ever slopped hogs. All right, we got one one red, oh, we got two rednecks, three, all right, there's three of us. <laughs> now, hogs are stinky business, but even though I've slopped hogs, because they will li eat literally anything, and I've never been tempted with their food, ever. But he's so hungry, hunger will push you to the place that we call rock bottom. And that's where this kid is. He's at rock bottom. He's offended his father because you see, to ask for your inheritance before your father passes away, in essence, is to slap him in the face and say, I wish you were dead, I want my money, please die quick. But because he's alive, he says, I just, I want you to give me my inheritance now. Now most fathers will say, you impatient little ungrateful punk. But this father's very gracious, he's like, okay, 
He's the younger brother, so he's going to get a third of the inheritance because all older brothers get two-thirds of the inheritance. And he gets the inheritance, he waits a little long while, and then he goes to a far country because he's going to waste it. He goes to Vegas, right? He's going to go party in Vegas. He's going to go spend all the money in Vegas because it's 100 miles away from home. And hopefully word won't get back about what he's been doing over in Vegas, now, I know none of you have ever had that experience of getting a big load of cash as a young individual and doing that, possibly. My uh, cousin and I, he had flunked two grades just so that he could come back and be in my grade. And then we went to school, through school together more like brothers, but he broke a trust when we were at the beginning of our senior year. So we we're both, I'm 17, he's a couple years older than me. And, and he breaks this trust, so he gets $35,000 as seniors in high school, and him and I spent it in six months. Now, this is back in 1982, so it's a ways back there, but we blew it, and we blew it fast. And he had all kinds of friends at that time, you know, when you're throwing cash around, and he's buying all the booze, and he's buying all the drugs, and we're, we're snorting coke, and we're do, you know, dropping acid, and we're just like these off-the-hook people. <laughs> And this is our senior year. And this six months, boom, it's all gone. It's amazing that he, all those friends left him as soon as he was flat broke, right? I'm family, so I'm still with, I was just with him last week at my mom's deathbed because he lives with my mom because he, she's the only woman that ever loved him. He calls her <laughs> Aunt Nana. He's gonna be a little lost without my mom, Aunt Nana. But we blew all of this, these wages, we were all this money so fast. And, and here's this prodigal, and he blows it all. And so now he's hungry, he's desperate, and he's hit bottom. Where is bottom for you? Where was bottom for you? You're in church, so you probably had a bottom some, some, some time ago. Maybe it was a, a broken marriage. Maybe it was addiction that pushed you to the brink. Maybe it was just a heartbreak of loneliness. Maybe it was the guilt and shame of things that you've done. A lot of things will bring people to their rock bottom. For me, it was constantly getting in trouble with the law that brought me to rock bottom. I was raised by a convict that uh, was in prison for stabbing a guy five times. He went to prison multiple times. Right, right when my mom married him, he had just got out of San Quentin. And uh, he was in the North Block, the most violent uh, criminal area of San Quentin. He took me there when I was seven years old to visit his friends in uh, a big cafeteria. We did prisoner visitation back in 1972. And so I came by it honestly in the sense that I was raised by a criminal to be a criminal. So I was busted for grand larceny when I was in, uh, 15 and in trouble with the law pretty much every year. I was in, on probation in the third grade. How do you even get on probation in the third grade? It's hard to do, but I pulled it off. And, um, but the reality is, is I'm just living this way. But constantly being in trouble with the law. You see, the Bible says that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's why when you, a culture softens laws, what happens is all these things that were illegal now become legal. And so now a person has to go a lot further down the road to violate law, to realize they've broken law, to realize they need a savior. The law is not a bad thing. It's a good thing that brings you to your knees. And in one of those situations where I, me and three of my friends had beat up two guys really bad, 
And by the way, one of them was the bass player in the Calvary Chapel worship team. And, uh, but all these things brought me to the end of myself. To where one day in February of 1984, I fell on my knees and I asked God to forgive me all, all the wickedness I was doing. The presence of God filled the room. And I knew I was forgiven. And for me, it was as if I had been looking at pig food and that's what my life was like. The stench of my life and the wickedness of my life and the emptiness of my life. And even like the song we just sang, Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. You know, I know a lot of people sing that song. It's probably the most famous hymn in all of Christendom. And yet many people that sing it don't believe that line that saved a wretch like me. I was a wretch. And when you see a young man like this that's, and we'll see in a moment, though this is a parable and figurative in a sense to tell a story, his older brother is going to charge that he spent all Pop's money on prostitutes. And so he was living a wretched life according to this parable. It's at this moment when he hits rock bottom that he comes to himself. It says in verse 17. I love the way it says it. But when he came to himself, this is his aha moment. This is his light bulb moment. This is his moment where he goes, what am I doing with my life? And in that moment, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He even rehearsed the sermon he was going to tell his father, or the confession, I should say, that he was going to tell his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I can't believe what I've done. I insulted you by asking for for my inheritance, I blew all your inheritance on prostitutes, and now I'm coming back starving to death, smelling like pigs, and I just want to be a hired servant. I don't even deserve the title of your last name any longer. Dad, please can I serve with the other servants? You see, brokenness and humility, a contrite heart is the sacrifice that God is looking for from you. A broken heart. Your pride finally falling to the ground. Your pride now realizing that in brokenness, there is one desperate answer and hope that you have. And it's God. Because everybody else can give up on you. Everybody else can reject you. And maybe rightly so from our lifestyle and how we've hurt others. But in this moment, that change that takes place. Peter describes this change that happens in a soul in Acts 3, 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times, get this, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you need the refreshment in your soul? The breeze of God's love and grace and mercy and kindness just blowing into your soul to replace the guilt, the shame, the brokenness, the addiction, the self-centeredness, the pride, the arrogance, and to sweep in with refreshment because there's nothing like repentance that brings refreshment to the soul. But the person that doesn't see their need for repentance has no refreshment. That's this dark, stagnant place of the soul. You see, the difference in regret or repentance is described in 2 Corinthians 7.10. 
Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. When there's a godly sorrow and a brokenness between you and God, it leads you to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When I just feel guilty and shameful, but it's not a brokenness that leads me to God. A great contrast in this is Peter, the apostle, denied the Lord three times, the rooster crowed, and he went out and he wept bitterly, but he repented, he was restored, and became the great apostle Peter. But on that same night, Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and when he realized that he had betrayed innocent blood, he took back the 30 pieces of silver, threw it into the temple, said, I can't, this is, this is a man's blood, I can't have this blood on my hands. And they said, you see to it, we can't have your money. And so they bought the, a, a potter's field where they buried the homeless people, and Judas went out and hung himself. Do you know you can be devastated with your own sin and failure? and it leads to despair and self-destruction. Or you can be broken and repentant and turn to God and he will heal, he will restore, he will refresh, he will give your life meaning and purpose and give you new, fresh direction for your life. Well, the prodigal goes through this and what would the father's heart be? Imagine, you know, you're, basically your, your son takes your money, goes and blows it all. You worked your whole life to get this nest egg and you give him a third of it and he just goes and blows it in six months and now he's coming back skinny because there's been a famine. He smells like he's been feeding pigs and you've been hearing rumors about his lifestyle and now he's coming back home. How are you gonna respond? You gonna sit there with your arms folded yeah, what do you want? You left everything. But the father's not that way because this whole parable is to give an illustration about a father's love, a heavenly father that cares about us. Now there's some shocking language here in verses 20 through 24 about the father. It says, but when he, that's the father, was still, or the son was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. His heart was moved with compassion when he saw his boy from a long ways off. Isn't that something you know your kids, even from a long ways off, you see the way they walk, like their stature, their gait, whoever, you know, my, my wife or my daughter or my son, you can see from a long distance who they are. He says he ran. Now this is shocking because for a Jewish older man, in their dignity, they would not run in public. But he runs because he's so moved with compassion, he doesn't care about public opinion. He runs, he falls on his neck, and he kisses him. He embraces him. Do you know that that's the Father's heart for each of you? I don't care where, what you've done, how you've sinned. Do you know that there's no unforgivable sin except one, and that is rejecting the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? If you will take a step towards God, he will run to you. If you run to God, he will fly to you. God's heart of love is overwhelmed for the broken sinner. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to a whole religious segment of Pharisees and scribes that just don't get it. They don't get this incredible love of a father's heart. Therefore, legalistic churches that are just harsh and unloving, they don't evangelize anybody. They slowly die because legalism kills everything. But love and freedom and grace brings life and explosive growth because who doesn't want to be loved? Who doesn't want to be accepted? Who doesn't want somebody to treat them with mercy? That means not getting what you deserve. Each one of us deserve judgment. But God gives us mercy. He doesn't give us the judgment we deserve. On top of that, he gives us grace, an added blessing of grace 
just because of his love for us. It says in verse 21, the son said to him, he's trying to you know, get his little confession speech out. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, the father's not hearing any of that. He says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, which is, he's a part of the family, and sandals on his feet, because slaves or servants did not have shoes. That shows you to the, the condition that he was in. He left with shoes. He left with good clothes. He left with a money bag. He came back with no money, his clothes in tatters, and no shoes, because slaves don't have shoes. And so the father, father hugs him, he kisses him, he puts a ring on his finger, a robe on him, puts sandals on his feet, and then he wants to have a celebration in verse 23. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. And this is the reason. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. They began to be so thrilled at the joy of his son being lost and now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. And what a blessing Last couple of ride services I had, I, I don't know what's going on. I guess I'm thankful that I'm alive. It could have went bad. Fortunately, both of these in, individuals are believers. But uh, this last year, I, there was a guy in our fellowship, and he had a ride service to go back and forth to LAX. And I travel a lot, and so I don't really want to figure out a, something to do with my car. And I also don't want to be stressed out going. And when I come back from a long trip from the East Coast, I don't have to now drive for an hour and 15, 30 minutes in LA traffic coming back. So I use a ride service. And Steve Brigida, who was in our fellowship, he since moved to Florida to start a, uh, a fellowship there. Neat brother in the Lord. His story was he got a life sentence for shooting a cop. He spent 18 years in prison. And he decided that in about 10 years in, he decided a way to escape. So Steve's story is he said, the only way I can escape is to get into the garbage dumpster and the garbage truck will take me away. Well, what he did not contemplate in his genius plan was the compaction of the garbage truck, right? So there was six different pickups. He was compacted six different times by a crushing, powerful thing. It broke his ribs, punctured his lung, just, <laughs> it messed him up. And then it dumps him out, right? You go to the, the county dump site, it dumps out the garbage. But right there is a big bulldozer to smash the garbage. And it comes up and he's there. He's got his arms flailing out of the pile of garbage. And the, the bulldozer gouges his thigh with its blade, gashes his leg open and before he, the driver finally sees his hands waving. Then he gets up, but he's still determined. Punctured lung, gashed thigh. He's, he's gonna get away. But because it is the dump site that comes from the prison, there's a guard there all the time. So he got like 50 feet and was arrested from escaping. Well, he moved to Florida. I needed a new ride service. Now, Steve gave his life to Christ after that. He began to do Bible studies and has a great heart for the Lord. He watches this all the time. Steve, if you're watching, God bless you. Hope things are going well. Um, <laughs> So I needed to get a new ride service. Now this new ride service has been giving me a ride for some time. And the last time, uh, we figured out that the, the family that does this, they're Christians. And so I asked Ken, uh, Foster's his name. I said, hey man, tell me your story. We got an hour going to the airport. Tell me your story. He goes, well, I got out of prison for 20 years for murder. I'm like, what is this with ride services and trips to L.A., Right? 
And he said, well, my story is I grew up here and, and over in Oxnard and, uh, or, uh, and up in Santa Barbara. And uh, he played uh, pro baseball for the San Francisco Giants. But when he got out, he, started get, he got involved with a gal that began to deal drugs. And she taught him how to deal drugs. And though he never did drugs, he started learning how to deal drugs. And a drug deal went bad. And him and his partner were there. And he shot and killed a guy in the drug deal. His partner did. So they went to prison for 28 years. And he was there for 20, and then he got out. And his friend, who shot the guy, also got out. He's a pastor over in Riverside now. Ken loves the Lord. They got a great, you know, the Lord's doing cool things in their lives. And, but I couldn't help but listening when Steve, when I heard Steve Bridget's story, man, I just rejoiced. I'm like, that is so cool, right? I mean, I, I, I definitely wouldn't want to be in a dumpster getting crushed, but praise God, God, you know, what's it take for the Lord to bring the prodigal home? Right out of, the, out of the garbage dump. What's it take for Ken Foster to get out of prison after 20 years and have this great relationship with the Lord? He went back to the judge because after 20 years, the judge and the prosecutor were the same people and he was gonna try to get out eight years early. He became a paralegal in there basically, a jailhouse lawyer, and figured out a way through some precedents to get out early. But once he was out, he wanted to go back and thank the prosecuting attorney and the judge. And the judge had him come back in his chambers with his little team, his, his clerk and his bailiff and different things. And he wanted to have lunch with him. He said, Ken, I've been doing this for 20 years and not one person has ever come back and said thank you in 20 years. And here you are. You see the joy that happens when somebody is rescued from their sins. And it's as if the Lord, each one of us, when you come to the Lord from the brokenness of your sin... It's like the Lord puts this brand new robe on you, a robe of righteousness, and this, this ring that says you're a son of the family. And these feet that are now shod with the good news that you can go share that good news with other people about the love and the grace of God. Because at one time you were lost, but now you've been found. And at one time you were spiritually dead, but now you're alive. And you would think anybody would be excited about that story. But you see, the older brother's not so excited. Any of you have siblings, you know what that's like, right? I'm the youngest of four. We fought like cats and dogs. And this older sibling, he hears what's going on because this whole chapter is about the older brother. Because some of us are those wretches that have been saved by grace, and some of us are the older brother. You're kind of a snotty, judgmental jerk. I'm just going to say it the way it is. And you don't like that people come from brokenness, and they're, they're icky people, but you're good. You got it all together. You're so righteous. And somehow you think you have a judge's robe and a judge's gavel and you go through judging everybody's life. And you can't stand it when you hear bad people have been saved by God. Because you just don't think it's right. The older brother's in that case in verse 25. Now his older brother, older son, excuse me, was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatty calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You see, the joy that happens in heaven, Jesus says that when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven. Did you realize when you came to Christ that you created a party in heaven? Isn't that, is that crazy? Like, I'm just trying, you know, my life is in a big puddle. It's like I'm a dumpster fire. I'm a, such a mess. And I'm just so thankful God loves me and that angels are rejoicing over your life. But there are other people that were not so excited, like all my friends. I was under the misconception. I was so excited about Jesus when I got saved at the age of 19. <laughs> I started telling my, all my friends. And it was shocking to me. None of them were excited whatsoever. And they thought, now you're this religious nut and you're this. And, and family members too. Oh. And the rumor got out because my, my brother had recommitted his life shortly before I got saved. And so the rumor was in our small community, the Brown brothers have come to Christ. And others were saying, it's a lie, it can't be true. There's no way that God would love those guys. <laughs> and, <laughs> but only time will prove people wrong. <laughs> only time will prove people wrong. That after all the years, the family's like, oh, I guess this is not a flash in the pan. And my brother's preaching at a cowboy church that he pastors with about four or 500 people in Idaho. And, and God has rescued two wretches we were very lost, and now we've been found. Do you realize that God delights to shock people with his love? He delights to shock people with his love. It's an extravagant love. It's an unbelievable love. You see, that famous hymn that you've heard so much about God's amazing grace, most people have never read the biography of John Newton. John Newton was the most notorious. This was his goal in life. He was going to be the most notorious wicked sailor on the seas. And he accomplished it. See, because he was basically taken at the age of seven and forced into service as a cabin boy against his will. He became a slave on this island for a while. And he was a famous slave trader or uh, running the ship. His life was an evil, awful, wicked life. And when God redeemed him, when God rescued him, the organic flow of the words that came out in that song of amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Does your heart soar and are you thrilled when you hear things like, you know, it, it's shocking to me sometimes the most, the most audacious criminals that sometimes through the brokenness of law, and being institutionalized, they come to Christ. Salvation uh, happens a lot in jail because people have finally been cornered by the law. I remember the day that I watched an interview with Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer killed young 14-year-old boys. He killed them and he put them in his freezer and he ate them. Jeffrey Dahmer was a psycho killer and I watched this interview with him, and, and I'm not here to defend Jeffrey Dahmer and what he did. What he did was awful, and he deserved the death penalty. But he said, you know, I was raised with evolution. And to me, the theory of evolution, the natural outcome is the strong conquer the weak, and you survive. He said, to me, my life was a natural outworking 
of being a person that believes in evolution. They're weak. I kill them. I eat them. He said, then, I'd never heard the gospel. And he said, I heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose from the dead. I heard that he was the creator. And he said, I've given my life to Christ, and I ask him to forgive me of my sins. And the first thing that you think about when you... Now, after this interview, it was not even, I think it was like 18 months later, he was beaten to death with a mop handle in prison. But how do you respond when you hear things like that? How do you respond when somebody that's hurt you badly, you're actually praying they go to hell, right? You're praying they get the hottest place in hell because they hurt you. We have, this, we have this strange conundrum of justice inside of us. When I mess up, I'm like, mercy, mercy, mercy. When people mess up, I'm like, fry them. <laughs> Isn't that a weird kind of combination? It's like, how come, how come I want mercy, 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 and I want judgment for other people? But the older brother was so upset. His, his dad said, son, everything I have is yours. Why can't you rejoice when lost people get saved? My first gig as an assistant pastor, I had a tough situation. It was a 14-year-old girl. She came in. She was like 14, but she looks like she's 20. And she was pregnant. She's eight months pregnant. She came in. She was hardened by life. She looked at me and she says, I'm 14. I got this baby. I don't want this kid. You got somebody in your church that wants it. I got to get rid of this kid. I said, yeah, you know, there's always people in our church that are trying to get pregnant and they can't and so I hooked her up with the family they paid for all the costs and and they got a beautiful baby I saw her about a month after she had the kid so it's been about a month maybe it's two months three months and and I'm at I'm at Winco in the store and I'm standing and there's this guy You, you know when people should just get a room they're in line and they're actually almost having sex with their clothes on in a you know in a public setting it was it was you're just wanting to look away like this is very uncomfortable but all I saw was her blonde hair. I didn't know. And then she turned around and it was her. And she's probably maybe, you know, 15 now. And, and she's got a ring of hickeys around her entire neck. So there's hickeys that make a, a necklace all the way around her neck. And as I was looking at her, and I saw her face and I realized how callous she was about this kid. Like, I don't want this kid. She was just... And in that moment, I was so disgusted by this young girl. And in my mind, I just said, you, you just totally make me sick. You're going right back at it. You're going to be in the office in a few months wanting to give up another kid. Look at you. And the Lord pulled me up short. You know how God can have a 10-second conversation with you that devastates you? You ever have that happen to you? I'm bad, so I have them a lot. And, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of things going on inside my mind, just like... The Lord's like, that's that stinks. So the Lord just convicted me. He just said, you were just like her. You were so far from me. You were so wicked. The only difference between her and you is my love and my grace. And in that moment, I was that older brother. In that moment, God had to change my heart and my mind. And I went from this, like, you make me sick to, man, God loves you. And it's that heart change 
that Jesus is looking for in these scribes and these Pharisees. He's looking for that heart change where you look at people in their brokenness. You look at people in their sin, however offensive it is, and realizing that the only thing that's separating you from them is the love of God and the grace of God that has been shown to you. Because without God's love and without God's grace, you would be just like them. Now, it might not be your particular cup of tea as far as that sin goes, but you would be just as lost. The entire 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke is the talk to a group of religious people that think they're so much better than everybody else, and they're disgusted that broken, messed up people have found hope that's in Jesus. And if you think about that on a logical level, shouldn't that be our ultimate desire to see lost, broken people coming to Jesus? You see, the church is to be an emergency room for broken lives. You know, there's two people that show up at a car accident. Have you noticed this? There's two groups. The police show up. They want to know whose fault it is. The paramedics show up and say, who can we save? They're not, the paramedics say, you know, somebody's bleeding all over. They're not worried about giving somebody a ticket. They're a paramedic. Oh, you need blood? You need medicine? You know, how, how can I save your life? And it's really sad that the scribes and the Pharisees go through life like cops. Whose fault is it? Who are we going to give a ticket? Who should give their life? But then there's a group of Christians that go through like paramedics, realizing that people are broken. People are hurting. People are lost. And their ultimate answer is to repent and to put their hands, their life in the hands of Jesus and watch him transform their life. The day that a church stops being a life-saving station for broken people is the day it becomes a religious country club that broken people are no longer welcome to. And I don't know if you've ever went to a church like that. But there, everybody's just got this look like we're all fine, we're all good, we're perfect, we're religious people. Nothing bad happens, we never have struggles, our families are perfect. We're like a sterile nativity scene that you bring out a little crystal one. But you know the real nativity scene stunk like a barn. But they, they don't want certain people. I had a pastor come to our church. A friend of mine brought him. And he pastored such a church. And our church was exploding. There was the largest church in town. There was all these broken people. One day at church, I said, if you've ever been in trouble with the law, raise your hand. So many hands went up. I said, put them down, put them down. Because the good people are going to flee. We had cops and prosecutors and we had county officials and city officials, but so many criminals. Because every church should be filled with broken lives that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. This pastor came, he was invited by my friend, and he came and he saw the people. You know, somebody walking in, because you have the extremes. We had people walking in that they're just, I mean, they're tatted up from head to toe. Right, they got sleeve tats, they got, and then there's people, they came in with their body piercing, it's like they, their body fell in a tackle box. I mean, they got, you know, they, they're all pierced up. I have, no, I have no problem with tats or piercing, God bless you, it doesn't bother me in the least. But it bothers some people. And so this guy's looking around, then you had the cowboys, people coming, how do we know? They just fed the cows because the manure is on our carpet, we have to vacuum it between services because they're out in the pen. And then we had Mormons. And then we, we used to joke that our church is M&M, Mormons and meth addicts. <laughs> but this pastor came in and he saw this motley crew. And he leaned over and he told my friend, 
He said, I would never want to pastor a church like this with these kind of people. And my friend came to me that next week and he said, hey, I brought a pastor friend that pastors so-and-so church. And you want to know what he had to say? And I paused for a moment. Like, yeah. I'm not sure I really care what people have to say. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll bite. And he told me that. He said, he said he would never want to pastor a group of people like that in his congregation. And I said, he just paid me the greatest compliment that he possibly could. Because Jesus is a friend to tax collectors and sinners and broken people like you and me. And what's it take to get into the family? A broken life. Whether you have your act all together, deep inside you know you are a guilty sinner, destined for an eternity separated from God unless you surrender to the king who conquered sin and death for you and me. And this Easter week, this is what it's all about. That's why Jesus came, for people like you and me. And may God refresh us with the reality of his love to share with the hurting world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace that meets us right where we're at. You're so faithful. You're so kind. You're so good. And I pray, Lord, that right now you would refresh each of us. Those who need your touch right now, Lord, may they reach out to you. May they cry out to you. May they confess to you their need for you right now in this moment. Lord, would you fill them with your spirit and your kindness and your love that we might be that life-saving station for broken lives. Especially this week, Lord, we pray for this Easter week that you would do a work of revival in our community that just blows our mind, Lord. And the baptism that's out there a couple of weeks away, Lord, that we would see those people. That as the inward transformation has happened, that we would see that outward confession through baptism. Lord, would you touch? Would you heal? Would you restore our broken lives to be useful for your kingdom? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this worship song.